My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading comes from the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what law? By that of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel, according to St. John, the eighth chapter. Then Jesus said to the Judeans who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? Then Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. Last week, as a sort of precursor to the Reformation, to set the stage for this Sunday, and as a way to talk about the anniversary that we celebrated here at Emmanuel, we looked at a number of things, some of which need at least a little reminder. That included the historical context in and around the Renaissance and Reformation, and the resulting irony of those two movements that for all their attempts to come up with sure and certain absolute singular answers, the great minds of the day of those movements introduced a sort of ambiguity as they opened up new angles and methods to approach and answer some of the toughest questions facing humanity. They came up with multiple plausible answers. But ambiguity was nothing new. We looked at how ambiguity is used in Scripture. In particular, we looked at two reasons why, including to allow for mystery, 
Because some of the nature of God, humanity, creation, reality, and so on, those big, big questions, cannot be answered. They can't be summed up with simple explanations. So the ambiguity reminds us of that. And also to allow, another reason to have ambiguity in Scripture, is to allow an inroad, a different inroad, for different people with different experiences to get to the same outcome, to a similar answer at the very least, to hear the gospel even though they don't have the same background at all. The same gospel applies to each of them. Now, we looked at that in a few places, but the one we spent the most time on was the big theological topic theories of atonement, different metaphors and explanations that are used to explain how it is Jesus saves us, the church has been using for 2,000 years. The variety of answers, it's just like the ambiguity in Scripture. It speaks both to the mystery of it all. It's not like Jesus can be summed up with one simple math equation, one bumper sticker slogan, one metaphor to rule them all. And that ambiguity there, those multiple theories, give people of various backgrounds different ways of connecting with the gospel. Perhaps you can't relate at all with this theory, but then you hear this one and all of a sudden it clicks. And that brings us to a centuries-old half-joke. It's half a joke because it's not really funny because for you to laugh at it at all, it's going to require so much explanation. I don't know why I called it a joke at all. What's the difference between John Calvin and Martin Luther? Calvin went to law school, Luther dropped out. (laughs) Here comes that not-so-funny explanation. See, Calvin was all for figuring out the systems by which God works, including by which Jesus saves us, and he approached it like it was a legalistic system. And then wouldn't you know it, he leaned into the courtroom imagery and this sense that Jesus, rather than paying a debt or being a sacrifice, is taking on a punitive judgment, offers to accept the sentence on our behalf. Luther hung on to a much older image, which is one virtually all cultures can understand to some degree, and that's the one in which Jesus is the victor at the end of a continued battling, a a war with the forces of sin, death, and the devil. So the half joke is, of course, the lawyer relates to Jesus as a defense attorney, and of course, the law school dropout does not. We might even poke a little bit more fun by something about how Luther spent so much time in bars watching bar fights that might be why he was <laughs> more readily, more ready to connect to the imagery of Jesus as a fighter. Now, uh, again, half joke, not really that funny to most people, but uh, that's, that's the topic for the moment. Because the Reformation has those two figureheads, two major movements came out of it, and a few others, to be sure. And you might ask, what's the difference between Calvinists and Lutherans? And it's probably not going to be one really appreciates law school and the other one not so much. See, I heard questions like this phrased drastically differently a couple of times, actually, over the past few weeks. It's on people's minds for some reason. And one rendering went like this. What's the difference between Lutherans and Christians? And another went, aren't Catholics and Christians about the same thing? I mean, there's regularly confusion about these matters. Hopefully, most of you hearing them would just think, well, of course Catholics are Christians, of course Lutherans are Christians. But people hear these words tossed about and often don't hear them defined. And then, unfortunately, in some circles, some church circles even, the words are intentionally defined in a way to sort of, kind of, 
and maybe not so sort of kind of, exclude other Christians. Like, yeah, they believe in Jesus, but... For example, you'll sometimes hear that there is a pure version of Christianity. It's often hearkening back to the days of Acts, you know, just a couple of months or years after the ascension, and every variation thereafter is somehow less than. They had church figured out just perfectly for just a couple of months, a couple of years there, and then we lost our way. I'm framing it that way a little disingenuously because, frankly, the theory is a little bit silly. But to be honest, then again, so are many, perhaps most, if not all, the flimsy rationalizations we use in our churches to prove that our church is, we may not be perfect, but at least we're better than that church up the road. (laughs) I mean, many of you have been alive long enough to hear a Catholic marrying a Lutheran called a mixed marriage. Kind of not an okay thing to say anymore. Some of you are in such a marriage. Few of us can, in the current year, figure out what the big deal would even be if it happened now. So to clarify, some of these terms, the ones that are thrown around but maybe aren't defined, let's take a moment for them. We might talk about a theological tradition. And that just means, well, you know what a tradition is, and then theological means like we're talking about God. There's a relatively consistent strain of reasoning, a school of thought, a way of considering God, and that as a tradition persists throughout the ages and then maybe branches out into different traditions, (laughs) sub-traditions. And that's what Lutheranism is. It's a theological tradition which can be traced back to Martin Luther and the German reformers around him. The same Reformation also gave us Calvinism, which is another theological tradition. We may also talk about, now we use the word denomination, though some traditions will use words like coalition or association. And all that really means is a group of congregations and clergy, maybe some seminaries, are gathered together under one umbrella. They function as one organization. And and different organizations, just like anything else, different organizations of churches can have different authority structures. Some are relatively independent congregations, while others have uh, authoritative bishops and so on. Now, you can have denominations, those organizations, that share the same theological tradition, but those two different denominations fundamentally disagree on a particular matter or maybe a, a handful of matters. Even if we'd agree on most matters, especially, to, that is to say, The members sitting in the pews would probably agree on most matters, yet we end up with two different denominations. And as a Lutheran congregation, I'll give you the classic example. If you were to open up the front of our old green hymnal, you'll see the names of four different groups, denominations, church organizations. The first three were the three that shortly thereafter joined together and became the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. The fourth was the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Those four are all printed there as this was a shared effort, a cooperative hymnal. That hymnal was copyrighted in 1978. In 1979, two of those first three denominations started ordaining women. That was the last cooperative hymnal amongst those Lutherans. 
Now, to be fair, there are other deep denominational divides, but that was the start of the official divide, the we aren't even going to work together so much, between the two largest Lutheran groups in the United States, the question of whether we would ordain female pastors. Now, okay, so that's an explanation of theological traditions and then denominations. Then within many denominations, there are geographic distinctions, like which congregations are nearby and therefore will cooperate in that authoritative structure. Ours calls those groups synods, but others call them dioceses, some call them conferences, and so on. But then ultimately, of course, like I've already alluded to, these associations are made up of congregations, the individual churches, what we usually call church. So you may see why (laughs) those aforementioned questions, what's the difference between this and that, this church and that church, this group and that group, often go unanswered. Because to answer them well, it takes some time. And it usually bursts some bubbles. So it's not something we want to be brash about. Non-denominational congregation often function just like denominational ones. They just don't use that language. And maybe they don't lean as much into a particular theological tradition, but lots of denominations don't either. It's a pretty misleading name, but again, to be fair, other names are pretty misleading. The Orthodox Church, by and large, doesn't deny the orthodoxy of other churches, The Catholic Church's name, at least that part of it, means universal. And most churches are included in that if you simply take that capital C and make it a lowercase one, like in the Apostles' Creed, right? One holy Catholic apostolic church. Lutherans, who will hear their whole lives how awful some other kinds of Lutherans are, and yet it turns out on most issues, most people in the pews mostly agree. The fact is that Christian is a large category that contains within it a lot of variations. And every group I've listed thus far is without a doubt a group of Christians. Now, if you want to talk about the distinct differences between two particular theological traditions or two particular denominations, then that's another question. That, and we won't dive too deep into it because it would be just as long and just as complex and it would very much so depend on which two you were talking about. Instead, let's just make explicit something that I've been dancing with here for the last 10 minutes or so. One new central point, or at least new in the sense that I'm making it explicit, in light of the Reformation for us to take home today. The fact is that our broader tradition, you can even say Judeo-Christian, with that ambiguity and mystery we looked at last week, allows people of all sorts of backgrounds, different inroads, different ways to relate to God, different ways to relate to the gospel. And therefore, people with all sorts of different backgrounds are invited to join in the deliberations, the discussions, the debates, and they're invited to agree to disagree on most matters. Luther called them Adiaphra, things that don't pertain to our salvation, Christians are perfectly welcome to disagree about. And ultimately, often, the real dividing point, if you were to say, what's the difference between these two groups of Christians? It's merely a matter of emphasis. Like we believe the same 10 things, but we really think these one or two are the most important. So if they ever seem to contradict, if there's ever intention, if there's ever a competition, we're going to let that one or those two emphases 
went out. So Luther emphasized this text in Romans and Romans as a whole, hence we read it this Sunday every year. And that includes, we, we, we put it as those quick slogans, right? You are justified by grace through faith on account of Christ. Your salvation is afforded to you by Jesus and activated by a faith that you only have because God put the Holy Spirit in you. No work of the law, no amount of good deeds or good intentions can save you. Only God's grace, which we do not deserve and could never earn. With that as the emphasis, as the focus, the defining sentiment, or at least one of the defining sentiments of our theological tradition, every other question we ask, the answer will be informed by that emphasis, by the fact that you cannot save yourself, only God's grace can do it. Luther saw that the church in his day was not emphasizing such a sentiment, and he took that to mean not emphasizing the gospel. Instead, they were emphasizing other things, which again, we would agree with. We just wouldn't put so much emphasis on them, like church tradition, church authority, the centrality of priests, and the, well, one place where we do have a break, a breaking point, the ability for all those aforementioned, the church authority and so on, to assure you of the forgiveness of your sins by way of purchase, by purchasing a indulgence. When Luther tried to push the church away from that scriptureless emphasis toward one found in scripture, he was kicked out. But he retained his faith, even though he was kicked out of the church. And that's how we end up with a new theological tradition. Somebody who agrees with most of the claims that the church has made over the years, but emphasizes, maybe disagrees about one or two, and then emphasizes something different. Then, through our other emphases, we remained divided, either divided or remained divided with other groups in the area, other Protestants. Again, Lutherans emphasizing the words of Jesus and Paul after him. We insisted on the true presence of Christ in communion. That kept us out of cooperation with some groups. We insisted on the importance of baptizing infants. We simply would not surrender the scriptural stance on those matters, even though people had well-reasoned arguments to have an alternative point of view. Because see, I kind of skipped over that, but again, I've been dancing with it, that this is a core emphasis of the Lutheran Reformation, sola scriptura. We defer to scripture alone on matters of God and salvation. And that alone is a little bit misleading, because we do sometimes bring in other ways of thinking, but it's such a huge emphasis. If it's a question about salvation, and there's any question, you defer to the scriptures. Not reason, not experience, not intuition. So those different emphases are how we got here. A church that's divided in a way that looks worse than it is, and I wish we could remember that. See, a better question going forward rather than what's the difference between that group of Christians and that group of Christians might be to ask, what is your emphasis? Like you personally, what do you emphasize in your religious practice? What does your congregation emphasize? What's important to the people you worship with? What does your denomination emphasize and therefore your affiliation with it? What does your theological tradition emphasize? Why even say you're a Lutheran at all? Because ultimately, on most things, we Christians mostly agree. We just don't emphasize the same things in the same way. 
Now, if the church could get back to that, to emphasizing that which upon we do agree, Jesus is Lord, God is real and active, Scripture is the authoritative matter on all, is the authoritative source on all these matters, then we can rightly set an example for our deeply divided country and world. We have more in common than we have to divide us. And if we would just emphasize the commonality, we could agree to disagree, to deliberate, discuss, and debate all the rest. Like I said, we're a deeply divided church. The Reformation had a lot to do with it. But those divides are mostly at face value. If we could just see each other for who we really are, we are one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.